This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Well, the Kansas City Chiefs are coming off their first Super Bowl win in over five decades. And you may not know the name Randy Neal, but he was a significant figure when the Chiefs originally arrived in Kansas City some almost 60 years ago. Randy Neal, you see, was the first cheerleader, but he wasn't just a cheerleader. Oh, no, he was much more. Here's the story of the first cheerleader for the Kansas City Chiefs, Mr. Randy Neal. Well, the Chiefs are coming off their their third Super Bowl appearance since the Super Bowl has been around. And last year during the Super Bowl, Diane, you're watching the game between the Rams and the New England Patriots, and you're like, yep. uh-uh, history does not tell the truth as to what's going on in this Super Bowl. And it had to do with the cheerleaders. In fact, the first really grouping of male cheerleaders actually happened right here in Kansas City. It really did, and I think that's important to, to preface, that sometimes when people forget the actual true history of things and they don't discuss it, that, that the, the facts become a little jumbled. And my dad was one of the Chiefs cheerleaders in the first Super Bowl, and they were the only cheerleaders in the first Super Bowl. So Kansas City made history, not just with males, but they also made history because it was the first squad ever to perform at a Super Bowl, which was at Super Bowl number one. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. And Randy Neal is with us today on this month's edition of Two States, One Story. Randy, welcome in. We appreciate you coming in. You were one of the first male cheerleaders with the Kansas City Chiefs. I, how was, did, the, I was the first. The first male cheerleader, <laughs> right. How did, how did it start? How did, how did this idea well, come to you? In the spring of 1963, very exciting moment for the city, uh, it was announced that the Dallas Texans of the American Football League were being uh, moved to Kansas City, mainly because the Dallas Cowboys had become the predominant team down there. And Lamar Hunt said, I need to go someplace where I'm the kingpin. So he got together with the mayor of Kansas City, H. Rowe Bartle, after who uh, the Chiefs are named after him. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, his nickname was the Chief, uh, came up here and announced that they were going to move him. So I'm I'm a, at the present time I'm at that time I was an alternate cheerleader at the University of Kansas and an officer in the KU Pep Club, and I thought to myself, over a span of days, whether I was going to do what I was about to do, and finally I just did it. Sat down and typed up a letter to Lamar down in Dallas and said, "How would you like to have a cheerleading squad waiting for you when you get to Kansas City?" And about seven or eight days later, less than a week, I get a handwritten note from him on a little teeny tiny Dallas Texans notehead, and he says, go to it. 
Give us a call <laughs> when we get to Kansas City. Come down and meet us, and we'll talk about the program and get things going. That's pretty easy, the way that that all happened. <laughs> I mean, like nowadays, yes. you wouldn't think of writing a letter to the owner of a professional franchise saying, hey, I want to do this or I want to do that, and get a response back. Were you surprised that he even answered you? The man was not just the owner of the, of the de- Texans. He was the founder of the American Football League, and he was at the, at the time trying to think. He was 26 years old when he founded the league, and when I wrote him, I think I was 20, so I was – you know, definitely in his generation, and felt that way from the moment I met him. When I came to, came to, to uh, the trader, I went to the Traders National Bank building, which is where the Chiefs were first headquarters, Twelfth and Grand. There was Jack Stedman and Lamar Hunt and four or five other people, and they had a plan for me, which is basically we're not going to be here for another month or two with the team. Can you get some cheerleaders going and start drumming up some season ticket sales? And that's what we did. So, th- so you were you were basically the ringleader to start not only be the first male cheerleader, but the first cheerleader in general, and really recruited everybody to be be on that cheerleading squad. And you became an ambassador for the Chiefs as well. You're out there schlepping tickets, huh? That's that's exactly right. I've got a scrapbook to prove it. (laughs) So how hard was it to sell tickets in that first year when the the Chiefs were here? What was that like? Well, there was a a fan base to start off with of just good old hardcore football fans, Mizzou fans, KU fans, and so forth, and a lot of people who had wondered for a good long while why we didn't have a pro football team in the first place. So – uh, they certainly didn't fill the stadium, the old municipal stadium, when they opened up with their first game in the fall of 1963. But by the end of the season, and I would say early November, because they had some cold games, very cold in December, that just shot the t- tennis into the dirt. But the bottom line is they they had a pretty good crowd to start off with, which was nice. But what we did is we armed ourselves with uh, uh, convertibles from various local car dealers, put together some motorcades, and went all over the town for week after week after week with our cheerleaders and cheerleaders from high schools and local colleges and so forth and just toured these shopping centers touting season tickets. They even, uh, I love this, that the first practice, the first official practice for the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, or cheerleaders, uh, was in Randy's front yard in Prairie Village. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and, and there's a picture of it. Right down in there. So yeah. what were the neighbors thinking when you guys are out there, you know, doing these, uh, these cheerleaders? Well, the, the neighbors, you know, I had a lot of good neighbors. As a matter of fact, the boy lived next door who was had been a cheerleader, was a cheerleader at Bishop Miege High School. They had some male cheerleaders, some of the Catholic schools. Uh, the neighborhood pretty much knew about it before it really blossomed. So they were, you know, all standing out there. And all these, uh, that was the day that all the media just descended on us. Old Sam Feeback, remember? Do you remember Sam Feeback, no. the the cameraman for Channel Four? Yeah, come with a sixteen millimeter, you know, camera for <laughs> silent. You know, yeah, it's just unbelievable. So, so you guys, is it is it correct to say you as Chiefs cheerleaders had your first practice before the football team even had a oh, practice? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Here? Yeah, we were we were working hard in June in, in the Chiefs training camp, which was at William Jewell College, I believe. A uh-huh. uh, month later, after that, really something. It's really amazing because you know he handpicks these first, and I think we, we think there's about 18 members of the, the first cheerleading squad. Mm-hmm. He handpicks them. They end up having to select uniforms, which I think is great. My dad, which is later, and we'll get to him. My dad really wore white jeans. And a white wool sweater with a big C, a red C on it, with a red dicky, which I love. Wow. I had to look up how to spell dicky for my article that I wrote. Um, in any case, that's what they wore. But, but Randy, they had to be very creative in their first outfit. So you want to explain kind of what, how you guys did that? You didn't have any money, and we need to talk about that funding. Yeah, that, definitely talk about that, because that was a – even to this day, my cheerleaders face problems with that. But the bottom line – 
uh, we knew we had to do our own uniforms, so we told all the girls that we were bringing on the squad, and a lot of word of mouth there. I would hear about some girl, go interview her, and, and, and just then decide and call her back and you know, tell her you made it or didn't make it. And when I told every girl that I interviewed that your mom's going to have to do some sewing here, and that was pretty much the case across the board. By the time we had really gotten into it, we had our we had a guy who was an artist who designed our uniforms, and I have drawings, color drawings of all those. And the mothers made every single one of those those different designs, so we could interchange the uniforms with the girls. And the guys wore white slacks, never white jeans, well, white they, slacks. See here we white go. White wool slacks. Because that's where, but KU wore, you know, yeah. white button-down shirts, white slacks, and then a red, no lapel, lapelless sport coat. So you guys really did start not only from the ground up, but literally from the ground up, from making uniforms to creating cheers to Top interviewing to the cheerleaders. I, I bet a, a guy in his twenties interviewing cheerleaders was a really tough job to have back then. <laughs> I really feel for you. I fell in love about every twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you met your wife? Was she a cheerleader? No, too? You, you want the wife story because it's a good one too. I've, married, I've been married four times, married three cheerleaders. The very first, let's see, six weeks, two years, and four years, and then finally You're I married met, for six weeks. Six weeks. See, that, that's a story in itself. Wow. <laughs> and then finally, after the third wife, who was the mother of my daughter, uh, I met a young a young lady who uh, had never fluffed a pom pom in her life, and we've been married for thirty eight years. Well, there you go. Maybe you get outside the cheerleading circle, it's and it's probably. Kept doing it until I got it right. Yeah, Four times a charm. So what did Lamar think when you guys put this thing together? What was his first impression of well, you Well, Lamar, what a man. I mean, I just, to this day, I've got chills on my face right now just thinking about him. He was so gracious and so encouraging from the very start, uh, and it was always that way with all of our cheerleaders. We'd come down, visit with us on the field and things like that, and always encourage us. He didn't know for years that's himself, that the cheerleaders were not paid. Wow. And when he got, finally found out, he started made sure that they started getting paid. And that was way long time ago. Chief cheerleaders have been paid, whereas a lot of pro cheerleaders today, even today, some of them are still not paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, we've, I'd say... 40 years at least the Chiefs have been paying their cheerleaders. So, that's so I mean, you know, not that they're getting paid a lot today. No. I mean, and how does the owner of a company not know that who's getting paid and who's not getting paid? He, he delegated pretty much everything in terms of the nuts and bolts of the organization to Jack Stedman. And Jack Stedman, being a former CPA, he was an accountant. He was no sports figure. He was almost Lamar's best friend, but the guy who handled Lamar's money. So Lamar said, I'm picking you to be my general manager for one reason, and that was a smart idea, no doubt about it. But bottom line, uh, Jack Stedman knew. <laughs> yeah, they, they, it turns that I love that um, when the Chiefs cheerleaders, there was an article in the Kansas City Star that announced this is actually how I found Randy in the first place. And it's weird because he doesn't live far from me. Um, when I found Randy, it was it was an article announcing that the Chiefs were coming to the cheerleaders were going to be uh, part of this organization. And when Lamar Hunt was asked whether, you know, what he thought about the whole idea, he said, I feel that cheerleaders add to the enthusiasm of any event. Which I think True. is pretty fair, and I think the budget at the at the beginning was four hundred dollars. You said four hundred dollars to yeah, chief, run this whole thing. The chief gave us started off the first year with four hundred dollars, and that was just for expenses. It wasn't uh, given to us to help with the uniforms or anything like that. It was like, well, uh, some of that some of that money went to me for gas money because I was going all over town recruiting the cheerleaders, and I and that was I was allowed to turn it into an expense account, uh, meals, lunches, and things like that. 
and just incidentals. Because what, what are you going to do with $400 for an entire year of cheerleading for a professional football team? But then uh, at the end of the, of, the, of the summer of the first 63, Ward Parkway Shopping Center all of a sudden became very involved with the cheerleaders because they were the ones that staged the welcome pep rally for the Kansas City Chiefs that included all the team members, Mayor Bartle, right on down Lamar, in their parking lot in October of 1963 and after that when they saw what the cheerleaders were doing they came to me uh it was owned by john crow and the crow brothers realty they came to me and said we'd like to sponsor you guys so they chipped in at that time another four hundred dollars so that helped out a little bit it was just you know a pittance when you get right down to it 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 sounds like you guys were very instrumental in helping this franchise gain a foothold here in kansas city that's one thing we definitely were and that uh and one of the things that was really cool at the time, and here I'm sitting in a in a studio in a radio station where it's it's part of the the, the aura. It's part of what it's all about. This is where it's covered. We got so much great coverage, especially from the Kansas City Star, and especially from at that time the three network television stations. If ever, if ever there was something going on that was new, I could call Bruce Rice at Casey, you know, at mm-hmm. Channel 5, uh, call Ernie Mel at the Kansas City Star. He's the guy, when you when you mm-hmm. p- picked up that article, when you were looking for something about the cheerleader, she found the article that Ernie Mel wrote about us, and it was the first news in any medium about what we were doing. And Ernie would write a column about us, oh, and during that first year, at least once every month, and it just gave us we could walk into a door anywhere and people knew we were who we were and where we were where we were coming from it was amazing that in even by the the second season of the of the of the chiefs in kansas city and the cheerleaders that you know they put advertisements in the in the paper to tell people that they were doing tryouts and the tryouts were were parkway center of course because oh. they were partners and i love it because it said you know experience is not required <laughs> no experience needed but a lot of people from high schools you had to be at least a senior in high school and or in college in order to try out um, which kind of was the foundation. And, and Randy ran a tight ship. And um, I don't know if that continued so much when my dad was on the cheerleaders because things, you know, weren't as, uh, he took it very seriously. It was all about making sure that um, they were promotionally involved in Kansas City and selling those tickets, also doing fundraising events, et cetera. I mean, it was an important step, which is really what the cheerleaders do today. They were the first cheerleaders in the, AF- in the AFL. The mm-hmm. only they were the only team with cheerleaders in the AFL, and you also did the uh, you went to the All Star Game, which no, I thought was 1965, great. 1965, January, uh, being a kind of an originator of certain things, and maybe going over the head of the higher ups at one point in time or another. I wrote a letter directly to Joe Foss, commissioner of the American Football League, and said, "Is it all right if we, uh, the Chiefs cheerleaders, travel to Houston for the All Star Game of the AFL, January 65, and cheer for the West?" And he wrote us back, just like Lamar had done, and said, go to it, you know, and that's what we did. So we had a fun, two, two fundraising dances that we put on in the terrace room at Ward Parkway Center. And cheerleaders, are, and as well as just ordinary teenagers, came to it from all over town, raised enough money by doing those dances that we could take the whole cheerleading squad in our own cars, by the way, all the way down to Houston, Texas in January uh, to cheer for the West. When we got there, the Houston Oilers, who were our host, uh, they had just formed a cheerleading squad, so we got together with their squad, and it was, it was really quite an event. How, how cool is it, though, to sit here and look back and, and realize, 
like the impact you guys had on this franchise and maybe on where the NFL is today because you know back then you're you're writing letters to commissioners and owners and it's kind of a small thing we're talking about the most watched sports league in the world True. everybody is in love with the NFL it's all about grabbing dollars and money and you were just a little grassroots deal that started here in Kansas City and maybe laid the foundation for a lot of what we see today from in-game entertainment. By the second year, we had gotten, and I've got this, we, we didn't get to the end of my scrapbook yesterday mm-hmm. because in there are some letters from other teams in the National Foot- American Football League at the time uh, who were writing me, asking me for help and what to do to start a cheerleading squad for their for their program there. So we our reputation followed us, even though we weren't following the Chiefs to many away games. But... Uh, we went to some preseason games, went to Wichita, we went to Fort Worth. That was a lot of fun. But the bottom line is we were here in Kansas City always figuring out, always talking about at our practices and meetings what we could do in addition to what we'd already done. And that uh, and it's just it's just it mushroomed is what it really boils down to. And by the time we had our first tryouts, which was nineteen sixty four, the next year, uh, you couldn't get in the door. I mean we had I can't begin to tell you how many kids were there, but that's where we chose the second squad to replace some of the ones that had left from the first squad. And about that, I think it was 1964 that uh, a man by the name of Mike Nauman, who was a cheerleader at Rockers College with my dad, um, joined the Chiefs cheerleaders. He was selected um, to be one of the males that was doing all the lifts and all this stuff. Um, and that's how my dad got on to the team was essentially at, and Randy leaves in, um, after the season of 65 and, um, and then my father, he gets a phone call from his friend and says, you know, somebody might've gotten hurt or something. My dad's not real clear, but he's like, you know, Hey, uh, you want to, you want to do this chief's cheerleader thing. And he, my dad's like, I don't know how they got my name. I'm assuming from Mike. And the next thing you know, voila, you know, he's like, uh, that's it. That was, he was, I think that was my tryout. And I was like, I bet it was more detailed than that. But it, it was a big deal to be a member of the, of the Chiefs cheerleaders. And, you know, your payment, which was nothing really, uh, <laughs> was the notoriety, I guess. And then also you got two tickets to the game. So, you know, my mom at the time would, would, uh, definitely go to those games and, and usually probably because she drove them there. But, uh, you know, it was, it was a real thing to see. And I love my dad's memories of Municipal Stadium and how, you know, incredible, you know, incredible it was to like look up. You kind of felt famous, you know, you're out there and, and you're leading these cheers with the, you know, he had a big sign that said go and they would throw those up and Tony DePardo's band's leading them. And I mean, those are memories that I think because we when we think of the stigma of cheerleaders we think of you know uh, women dressed in you know little scathy costumes that are I'm sure appreciated by many males across the nation that's not what it was like back Mm -hmm. then and do you want to explain kind of how you you exited and then your next you know chapter essentially and then we can get to the Super Bowl wow the next chapter is me leaving in in uh 1965, and by that time I had started, and this comes from Lamar Hunt, who told me at the end of 1964, when he, we met for a short period of time in his, in his office when he was here to talk about the, the previous year, 1964, and he liked what, what we were doing and what I was doing at that time so much, he said, why don't you export this? So the next year I founded an organization at that time, which I called the American Cheerleaders Association. It eventually became the International Cheerleaders Association and then became the International Cheerleading Foundation. It ended up, uh, 
Sorry, I'd make a long story short. It's pretty easy. We started out teaching camps and clinics at high schools and universities around <clears throat> this part of the country. And by the time we got as big as we were going to get, we were holding nearly 200 camps every summer at colleges and universities in 44 states, including Hawaii, by the way. Wow. <laughs> that was nice. And uh, we had produced four national uh, televised specials on CBS television called the National Collegiate Cheerleading Championships had done that and the book that's sitting over there is that's the definitive book on cheerleading it's in the Library of Congress. So, so so you so you left the Chiefs and then really took this up to the next level. How much help did Lamar and the Chiefs operation give you on that? But the, what they what they did was gave me uh uh Kind of like if I wanted a recommendation from Lamar Hunt or, or Jack Stedman, you know, I could I could get it. But the best recommendations that I always got, if I needed to open a door someplace, you know who I would call? Hank Stram, who oh, yeah. was the biggest of all fans of our cheerleading program. I still got a, an autographed picture of his in, in the wall of my home where he tells what he th- thought of our cheerleaders. So we had su- support top to bottom, but the the support we got most of all was from the head of the team itself, and that was what, what was really cool. Why did why did Hank Stram buy in so big to the cheerleaders and what you guys were doing? Because he was, he we were, well, I'll give you the easy answer to that, Bob. The last game of 1964 uh, was against the New York Jets. The weather outside was nine degrees and it was snowing. And we spent the entire, entire, game down on the field moving in and out of tony depardo's band's tent where the heat was <laughs> and we hardly were even on the field and after we did that lamar just we obviously couldn't help but notice that he and that's when we had our kind of annual you know get together and talk about the program yeah. he just was you know and of course stram he's down there freezing his bunnies off you know, with all the rest of us <laughs> sure. and he knows what's going on he says you kids are something else and we, when we walked off the field the game had ended so we stayed with the whole Megillah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, the, he wrote that, and I love this because it's it, it's like destiny follows. It was his idea. If he wouldn't have made that phone call, who knows? You know, I know that my dad, if 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 Randy here wouldn't have made that phone call, or excuse me, I should say, write that letter yeah. to Lamar Hunt. That you know, who knows when? I mean, would we have gotten cheerleaders eventually? Probably right, but to have your pathway essentially be led, and then to write the official cheerleading handbook. 1979 that was on the New York Times bestsellers list. Let's like not forget that and is still in print today with some updated photos, but more from the 80s versus or I should say the 90s yeah. um, with all these different poses and how to do things correctly and all of this. And I mean, that is still, you know, definitively, they say the 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 book, if you want to be a cheerleader, this is the book you should have. Well, if you want to know what comes around and goes around, then here's something to ponder. Uh, in the late 80s, around 1987, 86, 87, 88, the Chiefs cheerleading program was up for bids. They wanted to find somebody new to manage and run the Chiefs cheerleaders, etc. So my company that I had founded after I left the Chiefs was one of the bidders, and we got it. So we we were again, and I have a jacket sitting right over there. Right. That jacket says says my name and my title. I'm back again as the head cheerleader, but I'm not on the field with the cheerleaders. Executive I'm the, uh, director, executive in the in the office, <laughs> running the Chiefs cheerleaders again. So so the very first game, I'm on the field. Got two tickets to be on the field, you know, for every game, and uh, I'm wearing my Chiefs jacket and all that, and and I'm standing there looking at the team during the warmups, and I look about eight feet from me. 
And there's Lamar standing there. And I leaned over and I said, hey, Lamar. And he looks, turns around and looks and says, Randy, how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's 25 years. right? How, there come, how come you got out of the, the whole cheerleading thing? Why don't you stay in it and still do your business? That's, I felt uncomfortable uh, being, being on the, uh, involved in the cheerleaders uh, and then starting a business at the same time because I felt like we, I wouldn't have this business without the Chiefs. And then the, the number one thing, that business required constant travel mm-hmm. everywhere. I mean, at one time I owned a condo, you know, in Honolulu because we had such a program of cheerleading camps all around the year in Honolulu and over on the island of Maui. So it's just as a responsibility you couldn't do both, and I didn't feel it was fair to do both. Plus, plus the fact uh, it was time. Yeah. When you really get right down to it, yeah. two two full years of working full time year round, managing things, and you know nurturing the program, et cetera. And not just nurturing the program, but nurturing the organization. I mean, I I go back to you selling those tickets. I mean, like, how many tickets do you think you guys were directly responsible for selling to get this franchise off the ground and and to be successful? In the first year, hundreds. But we would be at point-of-sale positions. Like, they would open up a table or a booth or something at a shopping mall, and we would be there for the whole duration of two days or whatever it took to help sell tickets. And then keep keep in mind that they would always, you know, pay for meals or something like that. You know, I turn in a little, you know, slip to get get our reimbursement for that. But bottom line, these kids, one of the things I told them when I was recruiting them and during the tryouts, you've got to be in love with this program. You've got to be in love with these guys. You're going to all get to know these people. All these guys, we've got almost half of the first team, half of the first team playing here in 63 is in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. That tells you what kind of players we yeah. have. It, it, it's unbelievable. It's and, yeah. and they were just, they, and the players, oh my God. I can. I, Abner Haynes was the very first major running back in the American Football League. He was the star of the American Football League, not just the Chiefs or the Dallas Texans. He, he and I ended up at a parade riding in a convertible in Sugar Creek. That's this area where Van Horn High School out near Independence. And in the fall, so that annual fall festival for the Sugar Creek community. And we rode in this very short parade and uh, got to know each other pretty well that evening. And he said the parade was over. We didn't have anything to do either. And he said, figure out something we can do. And I said, well, I'm thinking about going to a high school football game. My alma mater, Shawnee Mission East, is playing Shawnee Mission North. He says, let's do it. <laughs> so we, we drove, not knowing what was going to happen when we got there, because we were both dressed in our, he had his red blazer on. You know, he had his, he had white slacks on mm-hmm. too. I had mine on. We walk into the, to the Shawnee Mission North Stadium and, and we were mobbed. Not me being mobbed. It was Abner. <laughs> The star of the AFL and the number one player on the Chiefs team, and even Lynn Dawson will tell you that. It's just insane to think that it came so far in such a short amount of time and, and to, you know, as, as Randy exits and, and goes on to really make cheerleading history, not just in Kansas City, you know, uh, it was just, it was in 67, of course, that the Chiefs end up in the first, you know, the first ever Super Bowl mm-hmm. with a, which, you know, of course, uh, the NFL would call the AFL subpar and that they weren't as good and this was going to prove it. And, you know, everybody's talking about it. And, and it was amazing, you know, when, when that happened, it was never apparently because the Chiefs organization didn't really necessarily want to finance the Chiefs cheerleaders being at the first Super Bowl. I find this interesting that, um, you know, they, this, this, 
the team, I should say that the squad thought they would go. My dad said, you know, we thought we were going to be able to go. We thought we were going to go to the, you know, the Super Bowl and the Coliseum. And then all of a sudden, no, you're not going to be able to go. And my dad was so sad. And so he was never one to, you know, he's always like, I'm going to see if I can get a favor. So my dad worked at Milgram's, which is a huge, it's like price shopper today. It was a a huge, yeah, a huge organization. Uh, you know, in less, the name, the guy who owned it was Lester Milgram. He was known as Mr. Lester. And so my dad decides to go down to, he was a red coder. So he was a huge supporter of the chiefs, uh, a good friend of Lamar Hunt's. He goes walking into, uh, Mr. Lester's office. And Mr. Lester's not there. It's his secretary, Miss Francis. And my dad's like, oh, is he not here? I wanted to talk to him. You know, I'm a cheer- cheerleader for the Chiefs, and I also have been working for you for years. And, you know, we just found out we're not going to be able to go to the game. So he tells his story, and he just thinks there's no way, you know, anything's going to happen. And so he leaves, and he goes, my dad says, he goes, I don't know if I was 10% of the reason or 100% of the reason. But within a few days... They get, they get the news. The cheerleaders are going to be going to the Super Bowl. Somebody sponsored them. And so they boarded a 707 flight, a charter flight to, uh, LA, um, TWA. And, um, on that plane, they were given seat cushions. We still have ours. It says first Super Bowl and it has mm-hmm. the date and it says Kansas City versus Green Bay. Um, it had a blanket inside of it. The blanket got eaten by moths, but we do have the cushion. Um, my dad said it was the coolest thing because they served steaks and it was like, it's, you know, this is a, this is it. Like back when it was really fancy to fly, they served mm-hmm. steaks with a branded Kansas City Chiefs logo on them. Oh, that's pretty cool. Is that not amazing? Yeah. So they and get guess there. Guess where the steaks came from? The meat department. Yeah, at the Milgrams. Milgrams. <laughs> and I yeah, guarantee that it was Lester who paid for those. I'm tickets. sure it was. was something and else. So to to be there and you know those memories uh, and to to think because you know and I I don't know if you remember this Bob when they did the 50th anniversary of the of the first Super Bowl, um, ESPN broadcast right. the game. You know the footage was missing for. Because in you know it was also something people don't realize is the first Super Bowl was on two networks because the rights for the AFL was with one network and the rights for the NFL was with another and so there were actually two games playing at the same time Jeez. for two different networks and then on the other it's the only Super Bowl that didn't sell out mm-hmm. they blacked it out in L A so nobody could watch it in L A which of course I'm really thrilled L A yeah. so they right. they black it out care. in L A and they sold tickets at twelve dollars a pop which would be a little less than a hundred bucks today and they still couldn't sell out the Coliseum about sixty two thousand people were there and I think it seats seventy eight thousand regardless the energy was incredible and that footage I was waiting I when I heard that they were going to play the the Super Bowl from beginning to end I was like. I finally am going to get that footage. That foot, cause you know, they're focused on the game, not sure. the sidelines. So to find your father in a crowd is like impossible. But I mean, damn it. If I wasn't watching them introduce the Chiefs, and they're coming through the tunnel. And my dad talked about the energy and even some of the players in the first Super Bowl talk about how they threw up on their way out of the tunnel into the stadium. Yeah. They were so nervous. And there's my dad and you can clearly see. I mean, it's clear as day. I'm like, there he is. There he is. And to have them report and not tell, and that's what I told Randy when I met with him. I was like, why have you stayed quiet for so long? Like last year, there was this big hoopla. They, you know, on Good Morning America, these first male cheerleaders, and they didn't just tout them as the first cheerleaders in the Super Bowl. They touted them as the first cheerleaders in the NFL, male cheerleaders. And I was like, somebody needs to fact check. And on top of that, if you go to, you know, just a website or information for the Kansas City Chiefs, I'd like to see them do a better job of telling the history of their own organization's cheerleaders. Because they say, or some of the information out there states that the cheerleaders were started in 1971. Are you kidding me? Oh, wow. No, no. No. 
Like That was on the Chiefs' website. On their website. Oh, yeah. So it's time to get this story right. And I'm so glad that Randy was willing to you know, uh, open up and talk to me because I, of course, have a personal connection to this history. It's more to the Super Bowl and my dad's two seasons or, or two and a half seasons. When And then they did get rid of male cheerleaders. And my dad has a letter from Lamar Hunt thanking him for his uh, his service and, and, uh, and doing the promotional events they did. But... It's, we have to make sure that it, in Kansas City, this is, I consider this recent history. We talk all the time about 150 years ago. This was 50 years ago, 50 plus years ago, just done. Mm-hmm. And we have people that can tell this story that are still living. This is called living history. This is stuff that we need to get right. And Randy was a little reluctant at first, but I was like, it's time for you to, to speak out. It's time to get this right. Do you think the Chiefs would have ever had a cheerleading squad if you didn't write that letter to Lamar? No. I know that for a fact. They told me that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why they they were the reluctant bride, so to speak, because they, they'd never done it. They didn't think it was necessary, and there was no line item in the budget for it, number one. And I, I remember talking to, to Jack Stedman, trying to get him to help finance, you know, with Chief's money, obviously, our trip to Houston for the All-Star game. And we were on a phone conversation, 30 to 45 minutes, going back and forth. And finally, he, he relented, and he relented very good. He got us hotel rooms. He got our gas money. We had expenses for meals. So that was the very first time that we, you know, they took took care of us nicely. And I think they learned a lesson from that because those kids took themselves out of high school or college because the schools were in session while the things were going on. And we drove down there. It took us a couple of days to get there, you know, and a couple of days to get back to the bottom line. There we were, and finally, the Chiefs, I think, were realizing, hey, these kids are out there just like we are, and it's cold or rainy or whatever, but they're there too. It's amazing to think. I think we need to just remember as we all in Kansas City are so excited, and we are cheering from our living rooms, and we're getting ready to celebrate, which, which I would believe is our going to be our, our third appearance and our second victory um, in the Super Bowl, that the the actual organization and the people behind it are so important that idea of cheering on the sidelines whether you're on the on the field or you're cheering from your living room it's like you know there's a lot of heart in this organization and we want to make sure oh, that we yes. get this history right i i think i there's one thing i really do need to say and this hit me very hard yesterday uh despite these you know, talks about you know trying to get money you know for various expenses and things like that because we were always needing expense money uh, the people in the chief's office, uh, when they were in Swope Park with their own office building out there, uh, Bob Halford and Pat Cross, the publicity people, uh, Don Klosterman, director of personnel, all these office people were the nicest people I never, I never, I ever knew in my life, and I couldn't think of one of them yesterday who isn't, who is still alive. So the, the Chiefs did this as much for the people who built the Chiefs from the very early start as they did it for the fans yesterday. We were in a bar last night uh, out in South State Line Road, and everybody was loud going nuts. You could tell half the people there had been to the game and so forth. And normally, if we were in a, a bar on Sunday night, we'd like a little quiet meal, but I said, let them hoot because every person in this town deserves this, and they're going to take advantage of it by far. But I kept thinking... And when, the, when we won the game yesterday, I, I cried because most of all, all these people I would love to have, to have been there and to see it, just watch it on TV, they're not around anymore. They're watching from above. That's right. We're all, we're all yeah. still rooting for the Chiefs. I, God bless every one of them. Lamar Hunt on down.
It was pretty fun going down memory lane with Randy to find out exactly what he did as the first cheerleader. He wasn't just a guy saying rah-rah on the sidelines. Oh, no, he was a guy selling the Chiefs to the community. And without Randy and that first cheerleading squad, who knows if the Kansas City Chiefs ever take hold right here in our town. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.